out tonight. It's a blessing to be here and a real privilege. And I'm glad that uh, there was a song between Kurt's introduction and my stepping up here to speak. Uh, I'm blessed this evening to know that Andy Montgomery is preaching at Colonial Hills Baptist Church in Indianapolis while I'm here. And I've known Andy for a little while, and uh, we're, we're still working on him. But he'll be a blessing to the church family there, uh, I'm sure. Linda whispered in my ear this evening, uh, fill them in on where the kids are because people have been asking, so I'm going to get it done with one fell swoop, all right? So our daughter Rachel is in South Carolina, and she and Joseph have four grandkids. They all look like me, except their skin's a lot darker. Our son-in-law Joseph, of course, is from India. Uh, he is a professor of biological engineering at Clemson University, and uh, he's been blessed in great ways, mainly with ministry. Every Friday evening, they open their home to an international Bible study, and our daughter Rachel cooks international food, mainly Indian. She cooks Indian every day. In fact, Joseph says she cooks better Indian food than his mother, but he doesn't he doesn't say it very loudly. But uh, but she really is a quite an Indian cook. Uh, doesn't use recipes. She just throws it all together, and people say it comes out great. Uh, they have about forty to fifty internationals, mainly graduate students at Clemson University. Uh, a lot of Chinese in the past. Now uh, other areas that are mainly Eastern. And God has opened a door for them to see souls saved. Joseph serves on the pastoral staff at University Baptist Church in Clemson, South Carolina, where the two of them met. And we're pleased with that and thankful. Our daughter Sharon turns 40 next month. That's a big deal. Uh, so she's living at home, for which we're really, really grateful. Uh, we're so blessed to have Sharon in our home. Sharon is a developmental therapist. So she took another master's degree. She took it in the early childhood education and works with little ones who aren't thriving, who aren't advancing uh, on a scale. And so they are her customers or her uh, clients until they turn three. So she's a baby whisperer. She has about 30 children that she vi visits with every week. And her uh, tools of trade are a trunk full of toys. She goes from place to place with her trunk full of toys, works with little ones and moves on to the next one and really likes it. And I don't know if our church could run without her. She's our preschool director, nursery director, and all things Sharon. I don't know how she gets so much done, but she's a tremendous blessing. Of course, our son Chad and his wife Courtney are in heaven, and this evening you can meet uh, their son Chase. I was saying to Tim Lewis this evening on the way in, he was trying to break down all the different Phelps names and how you know us all apart. My father was Charles Richard Phelps Sr., named for his two grandfathers. His two grandfathers were born both in 1853, so he got both of their names as they were combined to make his name. I'm Junior. I go by Chuck. Chad's the third, went by Chad. Chase is the fourth. In 2053, Chase's name will be 200 years old in our family, which is pretty cool. Then next is Caleb and his wife, Rachel. They're in Taylor, South Carolina now, which is Greenville. Um, I say it that way. It's Greenville. Uh, so when he said, uh, Faith Baptist Church in Taylor, South Carolina has asked me to candidate, Dad, my counsel to him was, you better know you're in the center of God's will if you're moving to Greenville, South Carolina. And so he's moved to Greenville, South Carolina, and he's sure he's in the center of God's will and uh, very pleased. He's in a very large ministry. I get three or four phone calls a week. I used to get one phone call a month right before Deacon's meeting when he's down in Florida, and now I get three or four weeks, so I know he's busy. <laughs> Uh, and we're really pleased. They have uh, three children. Uh, his wife, uh, Rachel, is from Colorado. And in fact, her father was a friend of mine when we were in college. So it was a blessing to see those things come around. 
And then our son, Dan, married Rianne. They live in uh, Michigan where he's a youth pastor at Trinity Baptist Church in Flushing, Michigan. And they have one and one on the way. And that one will give us our 10th grandchild, uh, for which we are thankful. And so pray for Dan. Uh, the situation in the church where he is serving is a challenge. Uh, the pastor who brought him there ended up having to resign in very difficult circumstances of his own making. And so Dan has uh, a lot of work that he's doing. and He's growing up really fast. And we're pleased. So that's the kids. Um, when I come back to New England, I always feel like I'm coming home. I told folks yesterday, my mother was from Boston, my father from Kentucky. If you wonder why I'm schizophrenic, I'm the product of a cultural mixed marriage. <laughs> and I graduated from West Virginia, which at the time, high school in West Virginia, we thanked the Lord every day when we woke up for the state of Mississippi. It was the only state in the country that had worse education, according to the statistics, than West Virginia. So I'm a mess, but thankful mess. When I come to New England, I'm reminded of David Livingston. David Livingston was in Africa forging a trail for the Lord. And when he came to the time of his death, his request was that his heart be buried in Africa. Now, his body is buried in Westminster Abbey, but his heart was buried in Africa. Uh, I can't give up my heart to be buried here in New England. <laughs> but there's a part of my heart here, and I thank the Lord for the privilege of standing before you this evening. Now, I've prepared an outline sheet, which I don't normally do when I'm moving around the country speaking, but Chase is going to give you one this evening. This was meant for a study that I uh, did this morning at the church in Dover uh, during the uh, Sunday school hour. But in praying about it and thinking about uh, the gathering this evening and what's happening in the world round about us, I'm going to take you to the book of Ezekiel, if you will, to the Ezekiel, the book of Ezekiel chapter 36. And we're going to zero in this evening on Russia in Bible prophecy. And my burden in zeroing in on Russia in Bible prophecy is to expand your horizon so that we can expand our hearts to pray, knowing the conditions of the times in which we're living. So thank you, Chase, for passing those out. Turning to Ezekiel chapter 36 and doing all these things at the same time can be a monumental task. And I hope we've got enough papers. If we don't, we might be able to rob some back and have one for a couple. How are we doing, Chase? Pretty good? Well, who's saying? I see the crowd back here. They're all eagerly waking, waiting for your, your visit. Oh, yep, they're gathering some up. They looked at them and found they weren't that good, so they're giving them back. We're putting Chase to work. That's our goal. He's ushering right now. When he was really little, I put him to work as the light brigade in our church. He turned on the lights and turned off the lights. We have some light switches that are behind the platform in a really dark area. He was really little, and he came to me, and he could barely reach those lights. And he came up to me, and he said, Dad, it's really pooky back there. But so he's in advanced training now. He's moved from turning on the lights to passing out the literature. His first, his first experience as an usher, and we're glad he could do it right here in New Hampshire. So thank you, Chase. Ezekiel chapter 36. We'll be there in a moment. And you'll see the headline on this outline, and I hope it'll rivet your attention. Because the nations that, about, that we're about to look at this evening in God's Word are nations that are in the news this evening. And as we look at the news, we ought to be looking in the pages of God's Word and realizing we can't understand the news ever, not just in the circumstances we see right now, but ever. We can't understand the news unless we see it through the prism of God's Word. 
When we see the prism of God's word, we, un we understand where things are going. And we know the end of the story, and the end of the story is going to be wonderful. But right now, we're in some of the challenge of the story. And so you'll notice on the outline sheet that I'm introducing a name to you, the name Vladimir Zernovsky. Vladimir Zernovsky, who's this fellow? Well, he's a political force to be reckoned with in Russia. As a deputy speaker in the state Duma, he's one of the highest ranking leaders of the Russian government. He's an ally of a man whose name you do know well. His name is Putin. He wrote a book entitled The Final Thrust South. In his book, Zernovsky says, Russia, Russia reaching the shores of the Indian Ocean and the Mediterranean Sea is a task that will be the salvation of the Russian nation. Russia will grow rich. Why did he say that? Zernovsky has an economic theory. His economic theory is you'll never get rich as a nation trading east to west. The wealth of the nations is found in trading north to south. Just look at the United States. We have open trade barriers between Canada and Mexico. And my, how the wealth flows in. Now you put yourself in Russia and you're trading with China, which doesn't always go well, and Western Europe, which is even more complex. His trade theory, his economic theory is the only way for Russia to grow rich is for Russia to reach down to the Mediterranean. But there are a couple of countries in the way of the Russian border and the Mediterranean. To get to the Mediterranean, you're going to have to traverse through Ukraine. You're going to have to go down through Iraq. You're going to have to go down through Lebanon. And then you have this country named Israel. Interesting times. Mohammed Ahmadinejad, I want to say that 10 times fast, was elected president of Iran back in 2005. Now, he's not in office anymore, but the scent of his service is still there in Iran. Ahmadinejad, way back in 2005, this former college professor and devout Muslim who denies that the Holocaust ever happened, he was heard to dream about a day in which he said, is it possible for us to witness a world without America and without Zionism. Did you know that in 2020, the United Nations set forth 23 resolutions? In the 23 resolutions in 2020 in the United Nations, 20 of them were clearly against Israel. 20 out of 23. Pretty tough record when you're Israel. As we open our Bibles this evening, we're going to be looking at Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39 in just a moment. We're going to discover an eschatological axis of evil. But before we do, we're in Ezekiel chapter 36. Long before the modern leaders of Russia and Iran were born, God spoke to his prophet Ezekiel. In fact, 2,500 years ago, give or take, Ezekiel was prophesying, and the words of his prophecy sound like something we could clip out of a newscast this evening. We look in Ezekiel chapter 36 and verse 17, and we read that Israel would be scattered. Israel would be scattered. Ezekiel 36, beginning in verse 17. The word of God says, Son of man, when the house of Israel dwelt in the, her own land, they defiled it by their own way and by their doings. Their way was before me as the uncleanness of a removed woman. Wherefore, I poured my fury upon them for the blood that they had shed upon the land and for their idols wherewith they had polluted it. And I scattered them among the heathen 
And they were dispersed through the countries according to their way, according to their doings. I judge them. Who scattered Israel so that they were so vulnerable that six million would be lost during the Holocaust? Who scattered Israel to the ends of the earth so that even today in America, we find anti-Semitic thought being spray-painted on the walls of synagogues? Who scattered them? God scattered them. He promises a scattering of Israel, and he tells them why. Because of their disobedience and their contrite hearts, or their rebellious hearts, rather. But in Ezekiel, we read also of a regathering. In fact, Ezekiel chapter 37 is all about that regathering. You remember the song, them bones, them bones, them dry bones? Well, that's Ezekiel chapter 37. But in Ezekiel chapter 36, God had already promised a regathering. In Ezekiel 36, we read beginning in verse 23, I will sanctify my great name, which was profaned among the heathen, which you have profaned in the midst of them, and the heathen shall know that I am the Lord, saith the Lord God, when I shall be sanctified in you, or set apart in you, Israel, before their eyes. For I will take you from among the heathen and gather you out of all the countries, and I will bring you, God says, into your own land. Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you, and you'll be clean from all your filthiness. Now, there's been a regathering in recent years, but the sprinkling of the water of righteousness has not yet occurred toward the people of Israel. But we read in verse 28 that God said, And you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. We come this evening to Ezekiel chapter 38. When we come to Ezekiel 38, we see that those who have been scattered and those who have been regathered will one day be attacked. God's word is very clear with regard to the attack that's pending upon the children of Israel. Ezekiel chapter 38, we look at verse 14. Therefore, son of man, prophesy and say unto Gog, thus saith the Lord God, and that day when my people of Israel dwelleth safely, shalt thou not know it? Thou shalt come from thy place out of the north parts, Thou and many people with thee, all of them riding upon horses, a great company, a mighty army, thou shalt come up against my people of Israel as a cloud to cover the land. It shall be in the latter days. I will bring thee against my land that the heathen may know me when I shall be sanctified in thee, O Gog, before their eyes. As we open our Bibles this evening to Ezekiel 38 and 39, we're being introduced to a very complex, but very interesting and very thought-provoking passage that I ha think has a great application to what we're witnessing even this evening. You see, Ezekiel chapter 38 is speaking of an invasion of Israel from the north. You'll see in verse 6, Gomer and all his bands in the house of Togarma of the north quarters. You'll see again in verse 15, thou shalt come from the pla thy place out of the north parts. You'll see in chapter 39 and verse 2, I will turn thee back and leave but a sixth part of thee, God warns this one called Gog, and I will cause thee to come up from the north parts and bring thee upon the mountains of Israel. God has predicted, prophesied a northern invasion. So let's talk about that this evening. Let's highlight it in light of what we're seeing. I've had the privilege of being in Ukraine five times. I love. Ukrainian people. I've had the privilege of going there the first time when Sharon was in high school. Then over the years going back, 
and sharing God's word with the same people that I met all those years ago. Then they were in Bible Institute. Now I'm doing graduate classes with them. Ukrainian pastors who have known tremendous oppression. I pray for missionaries by name that I know to be living in Ukraine this evening. Linda and I have had the privilege of being in Israel six times. I think it's six. It might be seven. It's enough times that when we look at the pictures now coming across the news, we recognize the places. And it's in our heart. As we look at the text before us this evening, God is talking about a northern chief. In Ezekiel 38 and 39, a very detailed description of a strong persecutor from the north. And we ask the question, who is this northern enemy that is coming? It's not hard for us to figure this out. We just need to look on a map and say, I know where Israel is. Who's to the north? Lebanon's to the north. Are they in the news this evening? Yes, they are. It's the home base of Hezbollah. Who's to the north? Syria's to the north. Are they in the news this evening? Yes, they are. Although their wings have been clipped by much insurrection in their own homeland. Who's to the north? Iraq's to the north. Have they been in the news of late? Oh, yeah, most Americans today, especially those who have soldiers that they love, know the topography of Iraq quite intimately. Who's to the north? Ukraine's to the north. Oh, we hear about them in the news. And then finally, you come to Russia. Straight line to the north, those are the nations that are to the north of Israel. So let's identify this northern army this evening with those things in mind. First, we see the Lord of this northern army. Verse 2 says, Son of man, set thy face against Gog. And we pause there. White Pentecost, great prophetic teacher of Dallas Theological Seminary for so many years, noted that Gog is the name given to the leader of this confederacy. Who's the, le the leader or the lord of this confederacy? A person by the name of Gog. Now, you're familiar with the name Pharaoh. When you hear the name Pharaoh, you think, well, that's the guy that ruled over Egypt. You're familiar with the title king, and you think immediately, probably, like me, you're talking maybe about the king of, his, of England. We're familiar with the title prince. We uh, read about the prince of Persia in the days of Daniel. But the title Gog is not quite as familiar. But Gog is a title of a ruler, just like prince or king or pharaoh. And so we're talking about the Lord of this army that's going to come one day. Son of man, set thy face against Gog and the land of Magog. Now, number two, we're looking at the land. The land of Magog comes into view. The land of Magog. In Genesis chapter 10, when the sons of Noah begin to disperse, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the son of Noah by the name of Japheth heads north from where the flood had ended, north at least from Israel, which is the epicenter of everything in the Bible. And he settles in a land that today we would call up near the Black Sea, a land that we call Russia. In fact, Dwight Pentecost again, quoting this time from Josephus. Who's that? <laughs> Most of us have heard the name Josephus. Josephus was a Jewish historian who was commissioned by the Romans to write the history of Israel after Israel fell. Okay, so when Pentecost quotes Josephus, who said Magog founded those that, or was founded rather, by those that are Greeks or called Scythians. In modern times, we call the Scythians Slavs or Russians. Gog 
in the land of the Scythians, at least that's what the Greeks called them, but today called the Russians. There's the land. Now we look at the leader, number three. We read, Son of man, set thy face against Gog, the land of Magog, and the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. The word translated chief in Ezekiel 38 and verse 2 comes from the Hebrew word rosh. And Gesenius, that's a name less familiar, but Gesenius is the great author of the Hebrew and Chaldean lexicon of the Old. In other words, he wrote the dictionary of the Hebrew language. Gesenius notes that the word chief in Ezekiel 38.2 is the Hebrew word rosh. Gesenius concluded that rosh is undoubtedly the Russians. The Russians. So Gog is the prince. Magog is the land. We look further and we say this chief is the chief of this place called Rosh, which Cassinius says is Russia. And number four, finally, the landmarks, the landmarks of the north. Of the, of the north. Cassinius identifies Meshach as Moscow, and he identifies Tubal there at the end of verse two as a place that we know today as modern Tobolsk. We're zeroing in on who this northern enemy is going to be. And in zeroing in, the language helps us to understand you're looking at the people today that we would call the Russians. And we turn the page over and we note that when we identify this chief persecutor, we identify a chief persecutor that's even persecuting today. For many years, Israel was under the shadow of the USSR. Now, the Americans and Western Europe, we've sided with Israel. It was the English who were overseeing the land called Palestine, set the boundaries for it after World War I, continued moving those boundaries around up until World War II. And so Western Europe and America, we've sided with, with Israel. Not so much the USSR. In fact, way back in 1956, when Israel was in a battle with regard to some territory along the Suez, the people that got involved to stop Israel in its advance uh, was the people of the USSR. In 1973, again, Israel was finding itself in a skirmish. And in that skirmish and battle, they were against Egypt. And it was Russia that stepped in and said, you can go this far and not an inch further. It's been Russia continually for over 50 years that's been stepping in and saying to Israel, not so fast. We don't hear about it much in the news, but Russia has been a long-term enemy of progress in Israel. And so for many years, Israel was under the shadow of the USSR, the threat of a northern invasion and a superpower conflagration in the Middle East has not gone away. In fact, where are we this evening? Well, we're out to find out where we are this evening because we're going to look in Ezekiel chapter 38 and identify a northern confederacy. So we've worked through verses 1 and 2, and we come down to verse 3, and God is saying, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I am against thee, O Gog, the chief prince of Moscow and Tobolsk. I will turn thee back and put hooks in thy jaws, and I will bring thee forth. Don't forget, God's sovereign. God is sovereignly bringing them forth this power with all their army and horses and horsemen, all of them clothed with all sorts of armor, even a great company with bucklers and shields, all of them handling swords. And now comes this alliance, the title of the Confederates 
that are given here becomes very interesting. In verse 5, we read of Persia. Now, until the 21st of March, back in 1935, there was a nation that was easily identified as Persia. It was on the map until 1935, Persia. But we have a modern name for that nation. That nation today is called Iran. The Iranians are the Persian people. And did you know that the Persian people, this ancient people group, who still speak their own common language, this ancient people group has never once been in alliance with Russia. For 2,500 years of known history, the Iranians and the Russians have never been pals. They are now. First time in 2,500 years. Interesting. God says, with regard to this northern alliance, Persia is at the beginning of the list. Then in verse 5, you read of Ethiopia. Now, Bauman, a great Old Testament scholar, concludes that this was not the Ethiopia of Africa, but rather a country that was somewhere contiguous to Persia. So this is a land that's close by the people of Persia. This is spoken of in the events in light of prophecy. We move further in this passage, and we realize that there's another nation that's listed. That nation is Libya. Ancient Libya was an inclusive land that would include Algeria and Tunisia. Libya that's listed here is the same Libya that's on your map this evening. And then we come to this next nation, verse 6, Gomer and all his bands. Now, we don't know of a country named Gomer, but there seems to be evidence that this reference refers to modern Germany, according to Arno Gabelein. And why would Germany tie in with Russia? Anybody ever heard of the Nord Stream Pipeline? So the Nord Stream Pipeline was piping natural gas to keep Germany alive because Germany's natural resources aren't so great. And somehow, mysteriously, it was bombed when Russia entered into a battle with Ukraine. And the Ukrainians aren't willing to take credit for it, neither are the Americans, and so it's still under some suspect. How did that happen? But when it happened, I can tell you this, heating prices in Germany went through the roof. And while we don't read about it too much in our news, if you have anybody that's over there in Austria or Germany, just ask them how it's going when it, caused, when it comes to heating their homes. Germany has a lot of great resources, especially intellectual resources, but not so much when it comes to petroleum resources. And they're going to need to get their petroleum resources from someone. And who's closest to them? By the way, Donald Trump's plan was for America to pipe in their natural resources. Pretty good plan. And we've got plenty to do it. That's not happening. So now we're looking at an alliance together of these countries, of Russia, Iran, Ethiopia, which is some area that's contiguous to uh, this part of Persia, Libya, which would include Algeria and Tunisia, Germany. Togarma is listed in verse 6. We come to this place called Togarma. This is generally identified as Turkey or Armenia. It's extended by some to include even Asia. So what's happening this evening in Turkey? There's a fellow over there in charge named Ergawan. Ergawan has been saying things to Israel this past week like, hey, you better take it easy on this invasion. 
if you don't take it easy on this invasion, and Turkey, by the way, is a nation in the NATO alliance. And so you've got a NATO alliance nation telling the Israelis to stand down when the Israelis are being invaded in their own homeland. Togarma, Turkey, Armenia. Then we come to Sheba at Dedan. Sheba and Dedan. Who would these people be? These are the people group that inhabit the Arabian Peninsula. So who would that be today? That would be Saudi Arabia, Yemen, Oman, Kuwait, United Arab Emirates. These are the people who come from this part of the world in the ancient times, the people of Sheba at Dedan. And finally, in this alliance, we find this place called Tarshish. Tarshish? Why, that's southern Europe. What's the place that Jonah wanted to sail to when God told him that he was supposed to go to a different place? He says, I'm going to set sail for Tarshish, southern Europe. Now, when we look at this alliance, you realize that these countries don't share common borders. It would be typical for countries that share common borders to enter into a political alliance, especially to attack a people group like Israel. So here's the question for this evening. These countries don't share common borders. Why would they form an alliance to attack Israel? Well, here's an interesting answer. They all have this in common. These nations are all very heavily influenced by a singular religion. They're all really Islamic countries. Now you say, whoa, 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 Pastor, Pastor Phelps. Russia is not an Islamic country. Well, there are 144 million people in Russia. 20 million of them are Islamic. And when you come to the topic of Russia and Islam, here's Putin way back in 2003. He says, we view the Arab and Islamic world through the greater part of modern history and their being our closest partners and associates. That's Vladimir Putin 20 years ago. In fact, in October of 2003, Putin traveled to Malaysia to address the Organization of the Islamic Conference and call on the Organization of the Islamic Conference to accept Russia as a member, saying, for centuries, Russia as a Eurasian country has been intertwined with the Islamic world. How many mosques are there in Russia this evening? 8,000. 8,000. So the alliance that you're looking at may not share common borders, but they do share a commonality in the evening that we're gathered here this evening. And if you know what the Islamic people are saying, the Islamic people are still saying what Ahmadinejad said so many years ago, we'd like to push Israel into the Mediterranean and have them be no more. I want to pause and just let what we've gone through sink in a little bit. Remember what I said? You can't really understand what you're reading in the newspaper, what you're watching on the news, unless you look at it through the prism of God's word. And in the prism of God's word, God's word says there's going to be a northern alliance. And I always want to say this by way of caution. We don't know the day or the hour. We can know the times and the seasons. And even as we look at these times and seasons and find them more than fascinating, but even convicting, we need to pause and realize that God could, could rescatter Israel right now and still bring them back. And you can look at a millennia out from now if God wanted to do that. And some preacher might be standing here in Ware, New Hampshire saying, you know, there's an alliance coming together here in 3023. 
that looks awful lot like this passage. That could happen. But what is happening tonight is more than a little bit interesting. Because if you know your Bible, you need to know that this alliance was predicted 2,500 years ago, and it's never happened, but it's happening now. And as it happens now, we better be looking up. Our redemption's drawing nigh. God's word tells us to occupy till he comes. And as we occupy till he comes, we realize the Savior said, work for the night is coming. When we look at what's happening right now in the Middle East, if we have loved ones who need to hear the gospel, we better not be waiting around. Now that's true for every day. But God gives to us prophetic motivations for today that ought to convict our hearts to realize if you've got a neighbor down the street that hasn't heard the gospel, that there's potential that there could be blood on our hands. Ezekiel, after all, is the one who cries out. If the watchman doesn't give a warning, the blood's on his hands. God gives us every reason to be very motivated with regard to praying for our lost family members and friends. He gives us every reason to be looking up. Occupy till I come, Jesus said, and we will. Advancing the cause of Christ, desiring to see people discipled, but understanding also that the days that we have may be limited. So when will this battle occur? That leads us to the timing of this confederacy. And when we come to the timing of this confederacy, we have to begin by saying it could not have happened before 1948. Impossible. Why? Because until 1948, there was no modern-day Israel. There was no flag with a symbol of the Star of David flying over Israel before 1948. In 1948, the United Nations recognized Israel as a sovereign state. It's possible today. It wasn't possible in 1947. And what we recognize as we look at this passage is this. There's an alliance that requires Israel to be at peace. So let's look at verse 8 of chapter 38. After many days, God says to this northern alliance, Thou shalt be visited. In the latter years, thou shalt come into the land that is brought back from the sword and is gathered out of many people against the mountains of Israel, which have been always waste but it's brought forth out of the nations and they shall dwell in them, all of them safely. Verse 11, thou shalt say, God speaking to the Northern Alliance. The Northern Alliance is going to say, I'll go up to the land of unwalled villages. I'll go to them that are at rest, that dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls and having neither bars nor gates. All right, 1948 and after, Israel's been in the land, but what we just read has not yet happened. Israel is not today a nation without walls. I'm among friends, so I think I can tell this. We're driving through Israel with our Israeli guide. And clearly on one of the many fences that you go by in Israel, it said that there were landmines. Beware, landmines. You can see it clearly in English. Beware, landmines. Then there was Hebrew writing. Then there was Arabic writing, and the guy that was with us laughed as he looked at the sign, and he said, in English, it says, beware landmines. In Hebrew, it says, beware landmines. In Arabic, it says, picnic area. 
There are minefields and walls all around Israel this evening. This passage predicts a day when they will come against Israel and say, verse 11, I will go up to that land of unwalled villages, and I will go to them that are at rest, that dwell safely, all of them that dwell without walls. If you're watching the news, you know that there was a fence to hold in the people of Gaza. Now, that fence was there to hold them in so they wouldn't do what they did. They breached the fence. Israel today is not a land of unwalled villages. But verse 12 says, when the northern army says they're coming, the reason for it is that they want to take a spoil and to take a prey, to turn thine hand upon the desolate places that are now inhabited, upon the people that are gathered out of all the nations that have gotten cattle and goods and dwell in the midst of the land. What's their motivation? They're coming because they want to get rich. Remember how I started? There's a common economic theory tonight in Russia that the only way for us to get rich is to have trade routes from north to south. We've got some impediments along the way. We got a country called Iran. We got a country called Syria. We got a country called Lebanon. Oh, but Iran and Syria and Lebanon have no problem with the Russian armies making their way down to the Mediterranean. Oh, but then there's Israel. By the way, when you get to Israel, this land that one day is going to be without walls, you get to a place that's very rich. When you're in Israel, I've asked our guide, so what kind of, you know, what percentage of your economy is, is tourist? As you see vans and buses everywhere in Israel taking tourists. I said, what's, what's the percentage of your economy that's tourists? And the, and the Israeli guide laughs. He says, ah, it's minimal. Yeah, we, we love the tourists here, and we know we have a responsibility for it. But he said, we're a medical epicenter. He said, we're the, the head of the diamond industry. He said, the inventions that have come out of Israel have made us very, very wealthy. He said, agriculture is actually larger in Israel as a percentage of our domestic product than tourism. He said, agriculture blows it away. We're the largest banana exporter in the world. Wow. Israel's a wealthy, wealthy place. But the wealth of Israel might not be visible to us this evening. God's word actually says in several places. In fact, I've given you some of the references to them uh, here in the outline. God's word tells us in several places. Maybe I didn't give you the reference, so I should. Let me give you the reference, Deuteronomy 33, 19. Write that one down. In Deuteronomy 33, 19, God speaks about the wealth of Israel being underground and under the sea. People say that the deposits in the Dead Sea of minerals cannot be calculated for value. For value. Hey, if you're in the know tonight, you're talking about how are we going to put all these batteries in Tesla cars? I mean, we're, we're, we're not... We're not mining the lithium and the things that are necessary for these. You're right, you've heard this, right? Where are you going to get all those necessary minerals? You ever look at the Dead Sea? People that calculate the mineral deposits in the Dead Sea say it's incalculable. Well, we can go beyond the Dead Sea. Did you realize that even this evening, some of the wealth that's been found in Israel with regard to their natural resources of gas and oil, which was unheard of about 30 years ago, are saying it makes a whole lot of sense for people to want the land of Israel. In fact, in May of 2006, this is a while ago, Warren Buffett invested $4 billion in a Galilee-based metalworking company. 
Warren Buffett's usually on the leading edge. Why'd the Northern Army want to come down? Verse 12, they want to come to take the spoil. So when we ask the timing of this, it couldn't have happened before 1948. It will only happen when Israel's at peace, the walls are down. It will happen when Israel's prospering. When will it happen, Pastor Phelps? Well, don't want to be a date setter, but I believe it happens very, very early on in the tribulation. Why? Because later, when you read Ezekiel chapter 39, you're going to discover how many years it takes for the carnage to be cleaned up and for the weapons to be burned. They're burning the weapons of this carnage right through the tribulation period. So what happens to bring this on? Daniel chapter 9 happens. Now stay with me. I'm almost done. Daniel chapter 9 happens, and in Daniel chapter 9, the Bible says Israel's going to sign a covenant with an antichrist. They're going to be promised peace and prosperity for seven years. They're going to take their walls down. They're going to be so secure in the peace treaty that's going to be established, they're going to take their walls down. And when the walls come down, the northern army's coming down with it. And that northern army, God says, he's going to destroy. We read in Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39 of the destruction of that army. Chapter 39 and verse 1, I will turn thee back and leave but a sixth part of thee. 83% of that army is going to die. And I will cause thee to come up from the north parts and will bring thee upon the mountains of Israel. And I will smite thy bow out of thy left hand and cause thy arrows to fall out of thy right hand. Thou shalt fall upon the mountains of Israel, thou and all thy bands and all the people that is with thee. You're witnessing the end of the northern army. And it didn't happen because of the strength of Israel. It happened because of the promise of God to protect Israel. They're coming. They're coming. God's in control. This past week, all the eyes of the world have turned toward Israel. And already people are taking sides. Always side with Israel. Genesis chapter 12 says, those who bless the seed of Abraham will be blessed. And those who curse the seed of Abraham will be cursed. Always side with Israel. But I don't like their politics and Netanyahu rubs me the wrong way. I was teaching a class in Lebanon a couple years ago. I said to pastors who were in Lebanon from Iraq, Iran, Syria, Jordan, North Sudan, Holland, of course, Lebanese, I'm being translated through Arabic and I'm teaching dispensational theology. It was awesome. I was warned, don't put up any Jewish flags. You're in Lebanon. The people of Lebanon do not recognize Israel. We've got a story to tell about that. Linda went with me to Lebanon. You can go to the national parks. There's no Israel on the map. There's no Jerusalem on the map. It just says Palestine. That's the Lebanese. So they said, don't put any PowerPoints up there like that. So I'm aware of that. But I put up on a PowerPoint the whole Middle East. And I said, let me read from Genesis. Genesis says, God gave a promise to Abraham that Abraham's land would be from the great river of Egypt. Most people think that's the Nile to the great river, of the Euphrates. And so I'm drawing this big circle. I said, now, God has never given all that land to Israel yet. But one day in the millennial kingdom, when Jesus is ruling and reigning with a rod of iron, not today, I'm not talking about modern Israel, I'm not talking about Netanyahu, you understand, but all this land, I drew this circle around all their homelands. I said, all this land is one day going to be Israel. And I'm being translated. But they understand English, some of them. And as I'm being translated, I said, 
so how do we feel about that? That and this Iraqi guy goes so so. <laughs> but they understand the scriptures and they're delighted that one day that all will be Israel. The events prophesied by Ezekiel have not taken place. They are expected, after all, as repeated in this passage, in the latter years, in the latter days. But an analysis of this passage leads many to believe that the invasion described takes place after the rapture because the walls are down, the peace treaty has been signed, the people have been regathered. So what do we do? We occupy till he comes. We share a gospel testimony because we know what the end's going to be. And we say, don't we serve a great God? Who could imagine that 2,500 years ago, God could inspire Ezekiel to rip a page out of our current events and put it in front of us for us to consider it and have it be preserved these 2,500 years and make it so plain? What a wonderful time we live in. I wouldn't want to live in any other time to be able to see all these things come together it's so confirming of the greatness of the God that we serve and the greatness of his word. And while we look at these things that are far off, let's not forget, just as clearly as God shares his word for those who are far off, he shares his word for those who are near at hand. In other words, when we read something that steps on our toes, we better side with God because we serve a God who knows the end from the beginning. We ought to be able to say, hallelujah, we know what side we're on. Father, I thank you for the privilege this evening being able to share your word with people that we love. And Lord, as we look in your word, we find in it treasures that are inexpressibly wonderful. Our hearts are riveted, our minds sometimes confused. But this evening, Lord, we know that we have a mandate that's found in the Psalms to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And so, Lord, we pray for the peace of Jerusalem this evening. We pray for justice. We pray for a world right now that's forming sides without knowledge and only emotion. And Lord, I pray that you'd spare those who enter into this battle, but you'd cause us who are here this evening in a land that's known peace and prosperity for all these years, first to thank you, Lord, for this good land. To thank you for the privilege of being able to gather just as we've gathered this evening in a place where our freedoms have been bought by the blood of those willing to lay down their lives so we can have freedom and justice for all. But Lord, in lands where freedom and justice is being threatened constantly, we pray that your will would be done. And Lord, we pray with the Apostle John of old, even so come Lord Jesus. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, thank you for coming out this evening. I trust we didn't lose any of you in the details tonight, but the details are fascinating. God bless you.